Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you, worship team. Good morning, Grantham Church. Good to see all of you in worship for this first Sunday of Advent. Although we are children are invited to kids on worship at this time, if you want to do that, or you can remain in here with us. This is the first Sunday of Advent, so we kick off our Advent to Christmas series called The Anticipated Christ, A Journey Through Advent and Christmas. There are four weeks in Advent, but there are three messages in this series because on Sunday, December 18th, uh, we're going to do a, The Anticipated Christ through the scriptures and song in a lessons and carols format. So hope that you can join us each Sunday, but especially for that, uh, for that Sunday of worship and singing together. Uh, if you haven't noticed yet, we currently have free devotional books that you can get at the info centers out in the lobby. Uh, this is The Anticipated Christ by Brian Zond, a six-week Advent and Christmas devotional. It is available for free until we run out of them. So get your copy while you can. Actually, Melissa, Pastor Melissa told me a little earlier that we did order a few more, uh, but they didn't come in due to the holiday. So even though you might have to start a little late, come by uh, on Tuesday to the office, and we should have some extras if we are all out at the info centers. Uh, Brian's book inspired this series. Um, I, I know Brian a little bit, so I'd reached out to him ahead of time to see, hey, what are, you, what are you doing? I knew this devotional book was coming out. I said, what are you doing each Sunday? He said, well, I'll probably just preach uh, on the devotional for that particular Sunday. And uh, well, I may not do that completely, but for the first week, I am going to do that. So I've used the first devotional entry uh, as the focus of today's message, the proto Gospels. You'll see in your bulletin this morning, the, summer, the sermon summary says, the world is not as it should be. We are not as we should be. And why is that? The Bible says that the fall of humanity came soon after God created us, and it began with a serpent waging war against God's good creation, his divine will, and the creatures that he loves. But it was there in the garden at the scene of the crime that God said he would crush the enemy and send us a savior. So in this first message of our Advent series, I'm going to invite us to hear the good news according to Genesis. Would you grab your Bible with me and open up to the book of Genesis? We're going to read chapter 3 together. Genesis chapter 3. I won't make you stand, but you can just follow along in your Bible. I'll be reading from the New International Version, Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, 
Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he'll rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's talk a little bit about the context of Genesis chapters one through three here. In Genesis chapters one and two, we have Ancient cosmology, there are two creation counts here. 
And it's good for us to remember that this is not about material origins. So we don't have some great conflict between the creation accounts of Genesis and science. We just don't. Some people want to make it so, but it's, it's not the case. Because the author of Genesis, and through this, through this genre of, of ancient cosmology and myth, what we have here is a concern about the functionality and the order of creation, not about how that is scientifically that it was created, but rather who is doing it, why, and for what purpose. Genesis chapters one through two tells us that God created out of love for his creation to be a temple and a dwelling for his presence. So think about this. God created human beings in his image to be in relationship with him, to reflect his glory in creation, to be fruitful and to multiply while being caretakers of the earth and the animal kingdom. So in that sense, you know, I think it's okay to believe that Adam and Eve were historical. I don't, I, I'm not as concerned about that question. That might lead to a, a, a more in-depth theological conversation. But I do think we should see that Adam and Eve are, are archetypes for the human race. And Genesis 3 reflects this ongoing human experience that we all still have today. They were created mortal, right? Dust to dust, which is why they needed the tree of life to live forever. As we read in the text, God didn't want them to live forever in that state. That would be terrible. So they, they were created for life, but instead sin brought death. And they have access to this life in the sacred space of a garden that God had given them to live and to work as priests of the living God. But again, their sin causes them to be cast out. But we see that it doesn't take long before right, they give in to temptation and sin to act as if they are God, disregarding his law, disregarding the order of his creation and his design and his good purposes for them and the world. They choose their own way, attempting to get wisdom to pursue their own order and their own ends. And you'll keep seeing this through Genesis 1 through 11, like with the Tower of Babel, which we saw in the Christ and Culture series. Man trying to control the world to bring order in his way and to do things according to his own wisdom, which brings about chaos and destruction. So they experience fear, guilt, shame, nakedness, and a loss of God's presence. Now, in the ancient Near East, the serpent, which we see in this story, uh, was a chaos creature. This is what uh, John Walton, the uh, Old Testament scholar, tells us about this passage and reminds us that the serpent was a chaos creature that tests and prompts them to disobey God. So, no worries. We don't have to wonder if the earth and struggle or wrestle with the idea the earth was somehow like Narnia once upon a time. It, it wasn't. That's not the point of this text. But again, think of the serpent as a chaos creature to put a choice in front of humankind, 
to tempt us, to disobey God. And in this case, he is the embodiment of the temptation that humans would act apart from God and live in the world however we like. So Eve listens to the serpent, Adam listens to Eve, and nobody listens to God. As a result, there is what we call in Christian theology a fall, and human beings experience the consequences of sin. But notice that God, after questioning Adam and Eve, says not only what will come because of their sin, but he also indicates that he intends to intervene and deal with the problem himself. Because the Lord knows, literally, <laughs> the Lord knows that we can't. And this is what we call the proto-gospel, the proto-gospel. Uh, the word in Greek is proto-evangelium, the transliteration there, but literally it's the word proto, which means first, and euangelion, which means good news or gospel. Genesis 3.15 is believed to be the first prophecy or good news of the coming Messiah. You say, wait, I, I missed that. Well, that's okay. Let's get a handle on it and let's go back and look at Genesis 3, verse 14 through 15. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike, and then he says, crush your head and you will strike his heel. So look at verse 15 there. In the immediate context and with the original audience, the serpent isn't the devil, not in the original context, but rather a symbol of temptation. The story said something about the conflict between the forces of chaos and human beings, this ongoing struggle between good and evil. And also the offspring there was plural. It wasn't a singular seed or a person. So you might be wondering, how is this about Jesus? Well, as time went on through biblical history, particularly with the latter prophets and the intertestamental period, that is the time between the Old and the New Testament, there developed a deeper meaning and understanding of this passage as it testified to the coming Messiah. The seed or the offspring is mentioned once again with Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, so in the same book. And it is developed even further throughout the Old Testament, going from an entire people being the offspring to one person embodying Israel and God's promises, where the Messiah becomes the central figure of the entire unfolding biblical drama. And so when Jesus arrives in the first century at the height of the Roman Empire, the messianic expectations were ripe. And religious Jews believed this message to be the beginning of the messianic prophecies that we find in the Hebrew scriptures. But what they didn't see was the true identity of the serpent. You see, it would be Jesus' teachings and his ministry that changed that, which his disciples accepted. And in the last book of the Bible, it becomes explicitly clear. And so this is why we as Christians read Genesis 3 the way that we do because of that progressive understanding, or you could call it progressive revelation, which we find in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 9, says this great dragon, 
the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. Now, keep in mind that the book of Revelation is an apocalyptic genre of literature. Uh, and in this story, Romans chap- uh, Revelation chapter 12, we have uh, maybe the NIV subtitles that the woman and the dragon. Some years ago, I actually uh, preached on that at our Christmas Eve service. It is simply a retelling. It is a, nat- a nativity story, an untold nativity story, according to John's revelation. But instead of Herod, King Herod, seeking to snuff out the life of the child Messiah, it is not Herod, it is Satan himself. And remember, revelation means unveiling. It it literally is to lift the curtain and to show you what's going on behind the scenes, to disclose something that was previously hidden. And so in, the, in this chapter, Revelation 12, verse 9, we see behind human beings doing evil is actually the evil one. Keep this in mind. The serpent, the devil, was cast down long ago and shows up seeking to destroy the seed of the woman to stop God's redemptive plan for the world, but he fails. But he fails. Still, he wreaks havoc on the earth. Specifically, going after the church. This is what it says there in Revelation 12. Going after the woman's offspring. Can't get the seed, but will then go after the offspring, those of faith. And this is the one whose head Jesus will crush by the cross, resurrection and second coming. So if you've seen the passion of the Christ, you remember this scene at the very opening of the movie in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Mel Gibson shows this by Jesus standing up and crushing the head of a serpent had come slithering out of the brush. Genesis 3:15. And so let's go back now and sum up what Genesis 3 is teaching us, which we've already been testifying to and singing about this morning in the service. It is this, while sin and death entered the world and came to the human race through Satan and our own sins, God promises, number one, to destroy or crush evil and death. Paul said in Romans 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Think about that. Right, so Paul is picking up on this language of Genesis 3.15 as well. And then number two, to renew all of creation. God promises to renew all of creation. Now, the New Testament sheds more light on this and uses the word resurrection. That what happens with the body of the crucified body of Jesus that is resurrected and transformed, it is, his body is heaven and earth coming together and married together, a consummation of, it, of these two realms. So it will be with all of creation at some point in the future when the kingdom comes in its fullness and all those who believe in Jesus will be resurrected and renewed with it. And then number three, God promises to dwell with us forever. Remember, that's what he always wanted. When he created the world, he created it as a temple, as a dwelling place for his presence. But it is through sin and death that we have felt the disconnect, that we have experienced the separation and all the consequences that come in our nakedness and our shame and with the darkness. The creation will be reconciled to God and we will once again 
experience his full presence without interruption. Amen? Therefore, we live with this hope. This is what we've been thinking about and singing about this morning, this hope that we wait on the Lord with anticipation, with expectation for God's good future. We wait because it's not here yet. And you don't need to tell anybody that. We all know that, don't we? We wait because generations later, we still see the effects of the fall and the work of the evil one who, as Revelation 12 says, knows that his time is short. And we can see the signs. And I want to share some of those signs with you just to think about the brokenness of the world. And as I go through some of this, you may be thinking, you know, Pastor David, this is Christmas time. You know, you know give us some things to be happy about. And no, it's not Christmas time, it's Advent. And in Advent, we anticipate. We get in touch with the longings of, oh, come thou long expected Jesus. In order to see our need for the Savior, we need to see our sins and our brokenness. For example, we see it in the moral decline of our nation. Our idols, our racism, our violence, from media to mass shootings to abortion and insurrections, our sexual immorality and our ease of access to pornography. I won't go into all of the detail, but I think you know. To our claiming to be wise as we disregard the created order for sex and marriage. And nothing has exposed the darkest recesses of our society like social media. And so think about it. If it comes into a person's head, they post it. No filters, no need for face-to-face reconciliation, just a lot of cowardice, merciless, snark, and hateful jabs. And judging by America's posts and tweets, we've become a narcissistic, victim-minded, sex-crazed, morally confused, consumeristic culture of death. This is the truth. And you see, what about those in power? What about our, our, our government and Wall Street and corporations? Well, they're not helping. Do you know that the national debt has increased every year for the past 10 years? The U.S. is now $31 trillion in debt. As we all know, our excessive borrowing has caused historic inflationary pressures. Unfortunately, there are no signs of slowing either. For ours is an economy that depends upon continued economic growth and debt to keep the system working and ultimately to benefit those at the top. You know, so we have to ask ourselves, how long can this last in a world with limited resources? How long can it last? At some point, we run out of the fuel that, that, that enables us to drive our car down the road and to make our plastics. We run out of lithium for batteries. We run out of the materials that make our smartphones. We run out of energy that is not renewable. And if that's not enough, the political polarization in our country, along with the power and the greed of corrupt politicians, top executives and lobbyists, won't allow us to make any significant changes in time to make a difference, so it seems. Meanwhile, we're harming the fragile ecosystems of the planet, of which we are called to be caretakers and managers, as we saw in the garden. And it doesn't stop there. We continue to see the effects of the fall and the work of the serpent 
and the widening gap between the rich and the poor. The rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. It's not just a saying, it's actually facts, and we have statistics to back it up. The pandemic has accelerated this. U.S. billionaires are, got 62% richer during the pandemic. Their wealth surged to combined $1.8 trillion. And meanwhile, the middle class is shrinking and a growing numbers of families can't make ends meet. I heard a news story on NPR a couple weeks ago that homeless shelters are seeing more senior adults these days because they're getting kicked out of their apartments because they can't afford to pay rent. Almost 38 million people now live in poverty in the U.S. alone. And then there are, of course, the more existential threats and scenarios, like the increasing possibility of nuclear war. I don't know these men, not personally, but God does. And so these men, Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un, whether it's in the name of self-defense or securing their country's future or because they are really out of their minds, I don't know, God knows, they could start World War III at the push of a button. <laughs> or worse yet, destroy the planet. Or at least send it into an inevitable collapse or cause an extinction event. Now, these things that we don't want to think about, but it's true and it reflects the brokenness of our world. And of course, these things that I've just described, they could already be happening. Due to the pumping of carbon into the Earth's atmosphere, which is not a partisan issue, folks. This is, this is science. Some climatologists are saying that we've already crossed the breaking point and that even if we stopped using fossil fuels and went to clean renewable energy tomorrow, the damage has been done and the climate will continue to make Earth uninhabitable for humans at some point in the near future. And I admit it's kept me up at night, so to speak. Some scientists project that 150 to 200 plant and animal species go extinct on average every day. That is happening now. Around 137 of those species go extinct due to deforestation. The Arctic is melting. The ocean is becoming acidic. Extreme weather events are increasing in frequency. Folks, the planet is in peril. There's unequivocal evidence that Earth is warming at an unprecedented rate. And human activity is the principal cause. What usually took thousands, if not millions of years, is happening now in a matter of decades. It is not an act of God. It is an act of sinful humanity. And this ought to bring to mind, now that we've gotten in touch with our brokenness, and, and we've looked in the mirror, and we've looked outside our window, and we've been honest. Now let's think about what the Apostle Paul wrote 2,000 years ago to help the early church interpret what they were seeing in their own day, which was the eventual demise of civilization as they knew it, the end of the world as they knew it. And listen to the Apostle Paul encourage us to wait and to long for and anticipate the coming Christ. He wrote this in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. He said, now I'm sure of this, that the sufferings that we endure now are not even worth comparing to the glory that is coming and will be revealed in us. 
For all of creation is waiting, yearning for the time when the children of God will be revealed. You see, all of creation has collapsed into emptiness, not by its own choosing, but by God's will. Still, he placed within it a deep and abiding hope that creation would one day be liberated from its slavery to corruption and experience the glorious freedom of the children of God. For we know that all creation groans in unison with birthing pains up until now. And you know what happens when there are birth pains? There's a, there's a baby coming. There's a baby coming. Something is about to be born, folks. When you look at all of these disturbing signs in the world, just remember what Paul is saying here. Something is about to be born. And there's more. It's not just creation, Paul says. All of us are groaning too. And though we've already tasted the first fruits of the Spirit, that is when we were saved, we are longing for the total redemption of our bodies that comes when our adoption as children of God is complete. For we have been saved in this hope and for this future. But hope does not involve what we already have received for who goes around hoping for what he or she already has. But if we wait expectantly for things that we have never seen, then we hope with true perseverance and eager anticipation. Finally, church, let's reflect on what we've heard this morning, and let's use these few questions here to help us respond as we think about the brokenness within ourselves and our world and the hope that we have in the gospel. Question number one, if you weren't troubled before you came in here, you probably are now, but that was done intentionally. It was done intentionally. The messages will will get lighter each week, I I promise. But I want us to think about it. I I want us to take it in and feel the hope welling up within you. Number one, what is is troubling you today about your life and about our world? Where are the signs of brokenness in your own life and in the world around you? Just let those things come, come into your mind. And what might be the most pressing thing for you right now at this se- in this season of your life? Number two, ha- have you considered Genesis 3 and the cosmic struggle that requires divine intervention? And that is this. Ha- have you come to the point that you realize that our science and our technology ultimately will not save us. That our ingenuity, that our thinking, that our smarts will not save us, which is why we need a Savior. We need the Lord to intervene. Have you come to that place this morning? That is the invitation in Advent. And then number three, will you accept as we enter into this journey toward Christmas, will you accept Jesus as the one who can save us and will save us and put your hope in him? You know, if you've never done that, not a greater time than Advent and Christmas. 
to give your life to Jesus. And maybe you've just been walking through the motions, right? Just doing the, the religious thing. And now it's time to stop that and really reach out to the Lord and know where true hope is found. The life, the peace, and the purpose that God can give. If that's you this morning, that invitation is open. And I know for a good bit of us, it is to maybe renew our commitment and ask God to renew our hope in the true source of our faith, the one who can and will save us all. So no matter who you are, there is something for you today. Would you receive it? Would you receive what the Lord wants to give to you, his peace, his hope, his joy, and his love? Would you pray with me? Father, we, we thank you, Lord, that we are not a people without hope. And that when we grieve and we mourn the brokenness in our lives and in the world, we don't do so as people who have no hope. Lord Jesus, as we, we get in touch with our own sinfulness this morning and we're reminded of a, of a real enemy that we have that's unseen because we don't battle against flesh and blood, we're also reminded that we have a king, we have a savior who will crush the head of the serpent. We cling to you this morning, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the only source of hope. And we say together, O come, O come, Emmanuel.